So I have a few reflections for, for us this evening to consider. I'm trying to think of what might be a coherent title. Um, something like, Your Attention Can Become Beautiful. Or, A Beautiful Mind. So when you gave your phones in today, if you did, um, and even if you didn't, whatever other gestures you have made of renunciation, coming here is an act of renunciation, of letting go of our familiar places where our attention goes. And some of them are beautiful things, but we decide to let go, make this act of renunciation. Why? Why? And hopefully we'll get to that, we'll get to more of that. But when you had it in your phones or whatever other such ways you have let go of a lot to be here, let go of being with your family, letting go of some projects you're interested in, letting go of um, <clears throat> having a good rest at New Year's, you know, watching some movies, whatever else, else you've let go of. That gesture you have made voluntarily, not under duress. And there's something very powerful about the voluntary nature of what we do with our attention. So how attention fits here is that your attention, my attention, it's with us all the time. Just as Sharda said when she was hiding in the toilet that time, she realized she couldn't get away from herself. Right? Our attention, that kind of bright, sometimes bright, on a good day it's bright, right? that kind of bright capacity to notice things, to see things, to apply itself to things, when that's with us all the time here. Your attention is always doing something. It can never be neutral. It is always engaged in picking up some object of thought or of feeling or of sensation, of emotion, of mind state. And often, without training, that attention is easily captured. When we study our mind through practice here, not through books, that's good, but here through practice, when we study our mind, we see that our attention has lots of habits, lots of places it is not voluntary. And our involuntary attention, attention that gets captured here or there or goes down that groove, without my say-so, without giving my blessing, without saying, okay, I think I'll agree to be mindless now for the next 25 minutes. That involuntary attention the habits of that attention are also part of what we study here. So when you gave in your phone today, these gestures that we make are on the way to saying, yes, I want to study. I want to really take care what I do with my attention, where I put it, how I put it, and why. Why I put it in any particular direction. There's no freedom with involuntary attention. 
So we train here, we give our attention a task. And today the task has been to bring our attention, offer our attention to this space of the body, including the breath. Offer my attention here. And when we give a task to attention, one reason is because it starts to cultivate something, something new. It starts to cultivate what we might call a samatha, which we'll say more about, but is the basis, is a basis for our insight practice. It's beautiful in itself. It's a firm, gathered, collected hereness that acts as a foundation for our insight. But when we give a task to attention, we also start to notice all the habits of attention that we weren't noticing before we gave our attention a task. So have you noticed any habits of attention today? Hope so. It's not a mistake. It's not like, oh, gosh, now my attention is supposed to be some, some I don't know, some sort of idealized image of where my attention is supposed to be. No, we give attention a task, and then we can see, oh, wow, look, it's really slippery. It kind of goes there, and it goes there, and it doesn't stay here. We want to see that. Studying the habits of our attention is good news. Seeing them is the first step to not be bound by them. It doesn't feel good necessarily, but the seeing, the freedom is going to be and begin by seeing those habits of attention. So I want to give a couple of examples. Um, So what, what I'm speaking about now isn't just the objects of attention, So the object of attention might be my breath or my body or my eventually my thought and sensation feeling. I'm talking about the one who is attending. So there's the object, we could say in dual dualistic language, there's the object of attention and there's the subject of attention, the one who is attending. We want to give as much attention to her, him, them as to the object. They co arise. They co-arise. So I'm going to offer some of the habits of attention. Not, it's not that I'm completely divorced, devoid of those now, but when I look back over my practice, somebody asked Shada, what has changed? So one of the things that has changed is I see habits of attention a bit more as habits of attention and not as the truth, not as me, not as, oh, my fault or my success. So in the beginning of my practice, and I offer this to you in case you recognize it, and also to have you reflect on what habits you might see here, because it's good news to see them. I see now that I had kind of two modes of attention, two basic kind of ways of doing my meditation. One habit of attention, which didn't look like a habit, was where I was told to focus on the breath. I thought that was what the instruction was. So I kind of mustered my will and my effort and squeezed myself a little bit and focused my mind on the breath. I didn't see that at the same time my body was kind of squeezing itself in because I wasn't really in my body. But there was this sort of hard efforting to be with the breath. There's me being with the breath. 
I didn't see it as a I didn't see it as anything other than doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. Only in retrospect, only with willingness to keep looking at our mind and playing with a practice and attention, do we start to see, oh, wow, there's not much joy in that. Wow, she, I, then, she was really tight. In the name of something she wanted, she really wanted to go deep. She really wanted freedom. She really wanted to unbind the mind. Very good motivation. But the mode was the only method I had available to me. My attention wasn't well trained yet. To pay attention, I had to kind of squeeze myself, narrow myself down, and it gets dry and joyless, and not much fun. You can kind of nail the mind for a little bit, um, but it doesn't really um, translate into your lived life of being in the kitchen with your mother um, and handling and attending wisely to the patterns and the, the mix that comes up there. So I offer this in case any of you recognize that. Uh, where focusing, focusing is fine, but where focusing becomes contraction. Does anybody recognize that? It would be really good to see. And I think it's good that you see that because um, once we start to see it, we're already on the way to more options, to more flexibility. One of the ways the Buddha describes the mind of one who has practiced well is that they, their mind, and mind isn't just head here in the Dhamma. Mind is chitta. It's the whole intelligent organism, the whole receptive, um, that which is impacted and that which can impact. So us. He said, one who is practiced well, the mind is malleable, lithe, you know, agile, not just agile with thoughts, agile in its way of attending. Not bent by the object that comes, but agile, firm, wieldy. It can be um, applied well to what arises. So please do not despair when you see these patterns of attention. It's really good news. When we're tight, if you get tight at all, or rigid or hard, or you're bearing down, does anybody recognize that, where you're kind of bearing down on the mind to kind of concentrate? Um, Good. If you're nodding, it means you're seeing it, which means then we have some more options. So one of the things you and I said today was soften. If you're noticing you're hardening up, soften. And when he said it, it reminded me of what Shada said um, when somebody in the teacher in the early days would say, be in your body. She said, how can I be in my body? I didn't, you know, she didn't know her body at that point. And when he and I said, soften, I remember hearing that instruction in the beginning of my practice, not knowing what they were talking about. How do you soften? There's nothing to soften. This is just me doing my meditation. Right? So the first step to softening is recognize that you're tensing, hardening, rigidifying, drying out, bearing down, gritting your teeth, the soma, the body is becoming um, tighter and tense. And I might be exaggerating, but I might not. 
You know, we can, when we're not yet able to inhabit our body, for which there is no criticism, because there's all very good reasons for those of us who do not dwell initially easily with our body. But when we do not easily dwell with the body, through the body, in the body, which we can learn, we can train, we can heal, we can develop, without that, we don't see the pressure we often put on the body in the name of paying attention. So to soften, when he said it this morning, I remember my, the old kind of annoyance at the teacher 25 years ago. What do they mean, soften? Do, do, I wonder if any of you get that when somebody says relax. You go, relax? What, what do you mean relax? Maybe some of you who are very relaxed don't have that problem. Um, but to have an instruction. So softening, if you notice you're bearing down and all life and juice has been drawn away from your attention and your practice, one thing you can do is breathe out. Drop the shoulders. Widen your gaze. So your eyes might be closed, but you'll probably find that when you're bearing down on the breath, your eyes are kind of locked in. Your inner eyes will be kind of locked down. So you might want to open your eyes and just roll your eyes a little bit, unlock that whole, what they call the ocular center, where for many Western Western people, attention gets very much made synonymous with the eyes. And we're trying to pay attention to our breath as if our eyes could bear down upon it. So rolling the eyes, softening the eyes, breathing out, widening the, what I'm going to call the aperture. So I'm not a photographer, but, and Yanai's going to tell me if I get this wrong afterwards, but the aperture, I'm going to use it um, poetically, I, this might be the right way, but, the, le- but the, the thing that the shutter that does this, it can go open and it can close, right? Am I close enough at this point? Okay. <laughs> so it's risky territory when I start talking about technical equipment. I could talk about, you know, something else, I know. But anyhow, this bit, I think it's a good image for it. So the, the lens can open wide and it can, and it can go in closer, right? So if we hear the word focus or being with the breath, we might kind of do that thing that I did for a very long time of kind of trying to focus in the attention, tightening a little bit. Widen the aperture. It's like you're opening that whole lens there, opening the eyes, imagining, sensing, and even using the light idea of my whole body. Let me just take my hands off and widen and come to the sense of the whole body. (sighs) What of the whole body can I sense right now? Can I sense my backside on the cushion? Yes, I can. And then can I see what kind of breath wants to come from there? (sighs) Taking the pressure right off, widening the aperture. And what you might notice at first is that the breath might not be so distinct and clear as it is when you're nailing your attention to it. 
might be a little bit vaguer at first. You might sense the whole body field and it's not crisp and sharp and precise like we like, some of us like things to be when we're paying attention to them. Might at first feel a bit more vague, like what am I supposed to be paying attention to? We can start to tune our intelligent attention to pick up the sense of the whole body breathing. Less pressure. Initially, not as sharp and chiseled an object of attention, but as we learn to tune our attention like an old-fashioned radio, we can start to sense more of the feel of the whole body, the tone, the texture, the vibration. But there are many habits of attention. And it's not that they're wrong, you know, in that efforting that I was, that over-efforting I was doing, that kind of trying to sort of drill into the breath. You know, as that is um, softened with, what's good about that can remain, right? The capacity to want to penetrate and see clearly in the way it's fine. It's a really fine aspect. It's one of our gifts as human beings. But it's not a one-tool Attention can be um, diverse and intelligent and agile and live. So check out any others. One um, can be sometimes the other mode I noticed there when I said at the beginning, the two modes. The other one was a kind of vague dreaminess. This sort of like, if I wasn't on it, then there'd be sort of this vague dreamy thing with different states, like being half asleep and half awake. And I think my mind evaluated, well, the first one is good and the second one is not good. You know, these binaries we do when we're trying to evaluate things. Um, But actually one was a direct result of the other, right? I'm really over-efforting and at a certain point it's like, and all these kind of dreamy states would arise, just kind of taking a break. We can develop the whole range in between. Check out and see. Sometimes attention can be like a butterfly. Can sort of hover about and land on something for a moment and then it doesn't really stay. And one of the things that will allow consciousness to deepen is to be able to stay. In the tradition, the word is vichara. We can train the attention to linger and stay with the breath all the way to the end with a soft, gentle attention. We can learn to linger and stay with a whole body sense even when it isn't just so sharp as thoughts but we can learn to linger with the tone, the texture, the vibration, the whole field. 
Sometimes we might notice attention isn't even like a butterfly, it just hovers. Here's the breath, and here's my attention, and I'm just sort of hovering nearby. And I know I want to pay attention to the breath, but I don't, but, I, but I'm used to hovering. And I hover around. Does anyone recognize the hovering? It's great, you know, have a word for it. Then we can see it. It's not to judge. It's, oh, this is hovering. Okay, what would it take now to come a little closer? What would it take now to kiss the breast more intimately? What would it take to make contact? One of my friends told me he, he noticed after a period of practice a, quality, a, a way that he was practicing where everything that came up in attention, every object that arose, he applied this um, kind of hammer to it. It was pretty violent. He could see in the mind, but he didn't know that's what he was doing. He was just sort of banging things with his mind. And the, re- the way he saw that was where we have these um, strange little village fairs in the countryside in England sometimes, and they have this strange... Oh, no, that's a different game. There's two versions of it, but there's this one that he was playing, which is called Whack-A-Mole. Right, and you have a hammer, and then there's all these little, not real moles, um, but these sort of things that poke out, and you have to be really on it. And then you, you try and bang them to sort of pop them back in and see how many moles you can whack. And it was only when he was playing that, after his period of practice, that he goes, oh my God, that's what I'm doing in my meditation. Um, but it was good to see that, right? Because then he could see, wow, look at that, that one tool I'm applying in the name of trying to get my mind quiet. And he saw there's no blessedness in that. But again, no judgment. It's like the seeing. The seeing is part of what begins the liberation. For this beautiful mind, for the mind of the one who has practiced to be lithe, agile, malleable, intelligent, bright, So we, I, will very lightly have such habits. And if here's a little piece for people who have been practicing a long time, is to see any habits in practice that we may have developed that even look like meditation, but have become, has it have a kind of inertia to them. You know, I looked up inertia in the, in the dictionary just now, but something that continues existing uh, in its existing state unless that state is changed by an external force. So something that c- keeps continuing in its existing state unless that state is changed by an external force. So I offer, again, from my experience, just to see, again, it can be, you know, when we get experienced in meditation, we can know how to get quiet sometimes. Um, and I offer this, you know, I know, I remember now, <clears throat> and I probably spent a long time in some of these states where I would kind of park my mind, not just the head mind, but sort of park myself in a state that was relatively undisturbed. Um, but what I see about it in retrospect is that state was uh, a little brittle, It had a kind of brittleness on it. If anybody would have come in the room or if anybody would have coughed or opened the curtains loudly in the meditation hall, I'd have got really irritated with them. 
You know, so I was blocking out a little bit the wider field in the name of trying to settle my mind. And there's a skill for us. It's not that we have to get busy with everyone. Of course we don't. We close our eyes in the practice. We want to gather here. But just notice the attitude. If there's any sense of actually trying to push or keep out or have like a do not disturb sign on the front of my meditation. This meditation, yes, there is an aspect that is deeply nourishing and settling and steadying and really is undisturbed. But the path, the goal of the path is not to be unaffected, not at all. There's no freedom in trying to make a world where we are unaffected. There's no love in a world where we're unaffected. So back to the definition of inertia. Carrying on existing in in a stasis, in a particular state, until that state is changed by an external force. And that's in a way the function of teachings and the function of a teacher um, and the function of sangha and a a function of hearing from each other is that we hear something that actually goes, oh, yeah, look. You know, like my friend Brad when he saw the game, there was an external force that opened his mind to see what he was doing. But as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, what is the force? What force do you know? What force operates in you, through you, within you, that is more than you, that is stronger than your inertia? Because each of us has it, or you would not be here. Each of you has some kind of draw, some kind of attraction, some kind of desire, some kind of passion, some kind of longing, some kind of fire, some kind of spark that would make you willing to spend 10 days on with your own body and mind. You want something or you would not be here. And that wanting can be very, very skillful and very necessary. The Buddha did not awaken without a deep passion, a strong passion, a dharma chanda, like a really strong passion to go beyond and to see what was possible for a human to see. So I want to call upon you now to reflect on what is the force that you know? What is, what is it that you know that draws you? What do you want? What brings you here? What do you intuit is possible for you that keeps you coming back to the cushion? Or what glimpses have you had that act as a beacon that draw you onward? Whether you have known those for yourself, whether you have read it in a book, whether there's someone who inspires you by the way you can see that their mind has become more malleable and lithe and beautiful. Whether it's your own vague sense, and nothing wrong with vague because there might not be a defined image of it, but your own vague sense of, yes, there's more here. There's more possibilities for consciousness. 
maybe it's maybe it's the reflection on death I was speaking to a friend this evening who is close within probably within the next few months close to dying and that friend has developed their heart and mind well and I see how it is serving them with these real difficult real difficulties that are being given to him in his path right now But each of us, as we reflect on death, given that that is one of our certainties, what shall we do with this attention between now and then? Because we're always doing something with it. We can't opt out (laughs) with attention. It's always making something. Maybe your motivation is a desire to serve. And you probably do serve in the many, many ways you do serve in this world, whether it's the serving to your immediate family or friends or the bigger projects that you're involved in. (coughs) And maybe you see a a relationship between the quality of the chitta, the heart-mind, and your capacity to respond and serve. Maybe that's what fires you. Maybe it's, no, no, nothing fires me. I'm just desperate to sort my mind out. Good. That's a fire. That's a fire. Let that, let that feel that. Yes, I, my mind is so crazy. I come here for refuge and I, I just I want to know some relief. Good. That has a flame in it. Can you feel that? Sometimes it might show up as desperation and we're panicking, but give you some refuge, give you some ground, give you some sangha, some teachings, some moisture for your spirit and that desperation can become a flame that calls you onward. Will you let yourself want what you want for yourself? And will you reflect on this this evening? Will you allow yourself to want the awakening of a Buddha if that is indeed what you want? Will you dare to let yourself want that? But let it be your wanting. You might not want the awakening of the Buddha. You might word your desire and your goal and what brings you here in a very particular and personal way. But know it. Because we need to call on that spark. We need a force stronger than our inertia. And that's what brought you here. It's not foreign to any of you. So tend that spark. Care for that heart's desire. Guard it. Feed it. And let it bring us to our cushion and be the force that can sustain us when we get bored, when we lose interest when we fall asleep it's like oh what am I doing here give it some words tonight or an image as Rumi in one of his poems says 
says a lot, but the punchline is, don't go back to sleep. The breeze at dawn, this is the poem now, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to say what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. just thinking as I said that if I could um, if we could sit down together and ask each other what brings you here what is the force in you that is stronger than the force to sleep and that we could celebrate that in all the different ways it would show up the diverse ways you would describe that. And we could tend each other's spark so that it can become a flame. Maybe it's the predicament of our world. where you want to understand how you can bear to let in what we see and still respond with beauty and grace. So we give attention a task. Sounds very clinical, doesn't it? <clears throat> and the first <clears throat> the first task is to gather our attention collect it collect it like cuz it it's elsewhere often collect it collect it here Let this body become filled with bright attention. And we learn to abide. And abide is this old-fashioned word in English. There's, there's modern usages that have to do with I can't think now what they are, but abide, abiding with something. But the, the traditional use, usage is um, to abide, to, to stay, to rest, 
to trust, to have confidence in, to abide, comes from the same root as abode, which means home. Home. So we learn to abide. <clears throat> and if you know the language of the tradition, the word samatha, which often gets put together with the word vipassana, right? Samatha, vipassana. Samatha is this capacity to abide. So as we learn more and more to abide here and now with this body, with this breath right here, this is our basis for the vipassana, for the insight to go deep into fertile ground. This body-mind becomes fertile for insight. So we take care learning how an abiding comes about. And it comes about through offering our attention to this body again and again and again. This abiding, to abide, to stay, to be at home, to be at home. That's, that's huge. That's huge. Some of our homelessness or longing for home, some of that, one dimension of that is that loss of contact with home, this home, body home, earth home, material home, the living, pulsing, breathing animal of this body. Home. And this abiding, the Buddha spoke about as um, wholesome, beneficial, leading onward. It leads onward. And is also the word that is used um, in talking about the qualities of love. When he talks about the four Brahma Viharas, he says the, the instruction is to abide, imbuing the world one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. To abide, when we can abide more with the body, our heart feels a little safer to love, to dare, to, um, to, to dare its sensitivity and its naturalness to radiate. This abiding has a lot going for it. Let's practice abiding. At times, you will be giving your attention to the breath to train the abiding. At times, you may be giving your attention to the whole sense of the body and filling this whole arena with bright mindfulness. At times, you might come to a very specific spot in the body, the abdomen or another place to give attention to the breath. All are fine. And if you do, if you do have a a focus at any point, just taking care that focus does not become synonymous with narrowing and collapsing and tightening. 
we can have a focus and a generous, wide, soft attention. So your attention, our attention, my attention, in fact it's not even really ours, is it? I mean, I'm saying that word, your attention can become beautiful. But when I would ever, ever use the um, word my, you know, claim something as mine, that's my piece of cake, that's my seat at the dinner table. My mum always used to say, she would always challenge the word my, she said, who died and left it to you? Who died and left it to you? She was sort of challenging gently my, you know, because the way the my, my can go a little bit like that. It's my. Who died and left it to you? And the same with attention. It's not really mine, is it? You see when the baby's born? I'm just thinking of my nephew when he was born by Caesarea and I was lucky enough to be there and he was kind of plucked out amazingly like that. Actually, he was asleep, poor thing. Um, but then he kind of has this rude awakening. And there's this little, little bright attention there. Is it, is it his? I mean, yeah, that's a fine way of saying it. But Your attention become, can become beautiful, and one of the things that will let it become beautiful is to care for it as if it's a gift, as if it has been given to us. Because it seems to me also, having sat with friends when they have died, that that animating, bright thing that we are called attention, that can go all over the place, that can lead us into really tricky places, that can be beautiful and in service, that that really does appear to not be there as I sat with my friend Um, there was a few deaths this year of friends but that brightness that we are that which when I look into your eyes right now it's like it's there Undeniably, it's not mine and it's not yours, but it's ours for the time being, and shall we care for it? Because if we don't, it can go in all kinds of tricky directions. We know what an untrained mind is like, all of us, so we wouldn't be here, right? An untrained mind is really, really hard. Right? So let's train this gift of attention while we have it together. Let it be flexible, live, firm, and let it serve what you want to serve in this life. Okay, thank you.
So the time is 8.16 and <clears throat> we're due to meet back at 8.50. Let's make it, yeah, let's make it 8.50. So we have 30 minutes now, just over 30 minutes for walking practice. And dare I say, enjoy it. Oh, and when we meet back, we'll have a shorter sitting um, to end the evening tonight because it's the first day and we imagine a number of you are tired. So we'll, we'll have a short sitting to end and we'll do a little bit of chanting in it. So even if chanting isn't your cup of tea, um, come along. It can also, on a, very, on a very utility basis, it can rouse energy. Uh, and if there's anything more beyond that, great. See you shortly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.